systems have become so complex in terms of their cryptography, some of the intricacies, that how they interact with the networks and in various platforms. I think it's tempting to say, ah, oh, they'll never be broken. It was the human operators that did things that compromised the security of the code, like using the same phrase over and over or starting the, each message with the same sequence of letters. Initially, the Germans used the Enigma. They had exactly three rotors, but you could shuffle the order in which they went into the machine. Could be one, two, three, three, two, one. 1938-39, they make five rotors available to pick three. Hi, this is Phil Gursky of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. And you're listening to Canadian Intelligence, eh? A podcast about all things related to national security. You've heard me talk in the past about the fact that I worked in intelligence for more than three decades, 32 years. And the first half of my career was spent with an organization called Communications Security Establishment, or CSE, which is Canada's Signals Intelligence Organization. Most of that time, I was worked as a multilingual analyst. I was capable of, of understanding and reading a whole bunch of languages, and therefore I could look at uh, raw intelligence and, and take, the, and take the, uh, the raw intercept, rather, and take the intelligence out of it. However, for about a year's time in the late 80s, early 90s, I worked as a, well, how to put this? I helped work in, in CSE's cryptography department. Now, this is the area that's all about making and breaking codes. As you can imagine, there's a lot of things I can't talk about when it comes to what we did and didn't do. But I have the absolute pleasure today of welcoming to the podcast a, a friend of mine with whom I worked at CSE for a very long time, who knows a lot more about cryptography than I do, and is and He's got the coolest website I've ever seen when it comes to cryptography in Canada. And we're going to talk about all things cryptography. So, uh, Richard Briso, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. Pleasure to be with you, Phil. Let's start with the most difficult question. So you were, you're a mathematician by training and you grew up in eastern Ontario. In fact, you grew up a few kilometers down the road from where I'm living now in Russell, Ontario. You joined CSE and you worked in as a cryptographer. I know there's an awful lot you can't talk about, but can you give my listeners a bit of an idea what it's like working in cryptography for, for a Canadian intelligence organization? Right. Uh, the bigger field being cryptology encompasses both cryptography and uh, code breaking, uh, cryptanalysis. So when I started, I started on the side of making codes, making sure that whatever codes uh, in the area I was working with to make sure whatever Canada was using in terms of uh, cryptanalytic or cryptographic tools was uh, appropriate and was secure enough for them to use. So uh, be it for uh, Canadian government departments, be it for its military, uh, police, uh, law enforcement, uh, like that, we would assess, evaluate, and if there were any flaws, hopefully we would find them. So that's the cryptographic side. Now, right. later, it was cryptanalytic. It was uh, how do we break codes? How do we try and get into uh, different systems that are of interest to the Canadian government? Later, it was also to include uh, support to lawful access. So that's a field that is uh, most interesting. Some, some of us preferred to do the breaking rather than the making. Uh, maybe fewer 
enjoyed the making rather than the breaking. <laughs> you know, it's an awful lot has changed since my very, very brief foray in, into the area of, of code breaking. It's 30 years ago now. I've often heard it said that the, 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 the glory days uh, of code breaking, the kinds of things you often see in Hollywood, are, if not behind us, are extremely challenged given the fact that given computer power today, given the algorithms that are used, that codes are all but unbreakable. Is that a fair assessment to make in 2021? I tend to agree with you. It's tempting to think like that. But uh, this week, it just so happened, I I watched an episode of uh, Elizabeth Friedman, The Codebreaker. It was on PBS. And at, during her time, you know, newer systems were being brought in. They thought, oh, these, these newer machine systems will never be broken. It's hopeless. And, well, anyway, between then and now, uh, some have been exploitable. Uh, some systems, perhaps many systems, remain uh, extremely difficult, if not totally unexploitable. Hopefully, Canada's and uh, the Five Eyes, in this case. So... I think if we extrapolate that, we sort of intuitively, based on our experience, because systems have become so complex in terms of their cryptography, some of the intricacies, that how they interact with the networks uh, and in various platforms, I think it's tempting to say, ah, oh, they'll never be broken. But, mm-hmm. you know, the bag of tricks that uh, those that who try to exploit uh, such systems probably has gathered newer, better, you know, really fantastic tools. That's interesting. I, I was always met or led to believe that one of the main reasons why codes could be broken was through human error. So you're, you can have the best code system in the world, but you have humans operating it. And if memory serves me correct, Richard, especially during the Second World War, and we'll talk a lot more about that in, in a little bit, that it was the human operators that did things that compromised the security of the code, like using the same phrase over and over or starting the, each message with the same sequence of letters. Is that generally true that that's one of the things that code breakers look for is people not using the system as it was intended? You're exactly right, Phil. The, the one thing we look for is something anomalous, something... For example, uh, I think of the Tut, Bill Tut story and Tunney yes. in World War yes. II. Their break, thanks to three people actually, led to the first computer to exploit the cipher, the cipher of Tunney. Uh, so in this case, it was repeating the encryption of a message, but not quite the same message. They added a couple of characters at the beginning. So but you're reusing the same key and use reusing the same key is usually not a very good thing if you're a cryptographer but if you're a cryptanalyst reuse of key sounds great that opens <laughs> doors potentially and if you read about the history of tunny and how it was exploited thank goodness one it was noticed second the linguist Tut and Flowers, the engineer that uh, who was instrumental in bringing about Colossus. 
I'll, I'll get you to um, remind my listeners what Tunney is, but I remember you were instrumental in bringing Bill Tut over to CSC, if I recall, in the 1990s to give a talk. And I believe he was in his 90s at the time, and he was recalling what it was like to work at Bletchley Park during the Second World War in, in, in decrypting German messages. So what was Tunney again? Tunney was a teleprinter. Uh, it had, uh, there were basically eight to 10 rotors or wheels. These wheels had a certain number of contacts on one side, certain same number on the other side, and it permuted the electrical signal as it went through. So the more you had, the more complicated, the more uh, varied were the encryption choices. So uh, so he got in into this system. Uh, there were two teleprinter systems that uh, the uh, Germans were using. This was for the high-level command. One was called Tunny. These were monstrous machines. And the second one, as monstrous, was the Sturgeon machine. That one was broken early on the war by Arnie Berling in, uh, in Scandinavia. And... Uh, but never got exploited afterwards. But Tunney eventually was and uh, provided great intelligence for the British. I'm glad you've, we've, you know, we've brought up this notion of the German machines because I, I'm going to share a link to your, your, your website, which is really, really cool, by the way. And uh, my, my, my listeners and followers and subscribers are going to see that you've, uh, you've acquired uh, quite a, a collection of, of old cipher equipment, uh, including German Enigma machines. So can I just ask you to to outline how did you go about finding these machines and acquiring them was it difficult or are they dime a dozen or how much of a link to the past you know the world war ii is 75 years old i guess uh, last year how hard is it to locate these types of machines and what kind of condition are they in when i got started i was still working at csc in the early 90s uh, when i did start and i was starting to acquire more and more uh, I got my first Enigma in the 90s. Uh, actually, I, through the encouragement of uh, my wife, uh, Sheila, who's also known as the accountant, uh, <laughs> told me to get in touch with the National Cryptologic Museum to see if that was a good deal, if it was a good investment. And uh, anyway, long story short, uh, that led to a great friendship with the curator of the National Cryptologic uh, Museum, Jack Ingram. Yes, but, yes, of course. So... Anyway, when I got started, it kind of got noticed, uh, and I would I'm tempted to name his name. He was an imposing, tall, strong man who was the head of security at CSE, and he called me in for a chat. So here I was, and he says, uh, I see, I hear that uh, you're collecting old cipher equipment. Why are you doing that? Are you intending to use it, resell it? I told him, well, you know, some people collect coins, some people collect stamps. I collect old crypto equipment, so my intention is not to reuse it, but I might play with it uh, to see how it works, that kind of thing. So he says, okay, off you go. So there we go. I think you know who I mean. I th I do. You know, it, 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 was, it was never a good thing to get a call from internal security <laughs> under any circumstances at CSE, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, I just and again for my listeners, the National Cryptological Museum is in Washington. It's it's quite close to, uh, to to Fort Meade, which is of course where the National Security Agency is. I've had the pleasure of being there a few times. I'm sure you've been there dozens of times. But for anyone in the in the uh, Washington area, if you want a fascinating day, uh, go to the National Cryptological Museum because it is such a cool place about the history of cryptography. Right, and when it opened, it was 
short uh, was known as the Crypt Museum and actually had people showing up and wondering where the caskets and sarcophagus were. <laughs> different kind of crypt, different kind of crypt. So, so Richard, you know, if you look at how people see cryptography and, and you know, it's been sort of the standard issue of, of spy novels over the years and, and, and films. And, and one of the more recent films that I, th- I think took a fairly serious look at the work of Codebreakers was to do with World War II and it was to do with the breaking of German systems. This, of course, is the, is the imitation game. Uh, with Benedict Cumberbatch. He played Alan Turing, uh, another fascinating man. Um, How good or bad, from your perspective, was that movie? I mean, it's Hollywood, so there's going to be a little bit of, eh, maybe stretching the truth a little bit. But was it it an okay movie? Uh, I thought it was a great movie. Uh, In fact, I have a PowerPoint presentation on the web that uh, can be seen by anybody who wants to know. This was done uh, in the first year after it came out. I think Cumberbatch, as who portrays Alan Turing, did a fabulous job. The unfortunate thing with the movie is that, uh, for example, Deniston, uh, Alistair Deniston, gets portrayed as a bad guy, and in the movie seems clueless as to how code breaking is, is meant to be done, and is quite the opposite. There are key people missing, like uh, Welshman, for example, is another one. Yeah. Uh, Dilly Knox uh, is another one. So, but you know, you've got to go with. It's based on the book by Andrew Hodges, uh, Alan Turing, The Enigma, and so they they go with the book. So, to some extent, the book may not have it all accurate. Uh, so, but in the end, Phil, as as you well put it, is uh, it's a Hollywood type movie. It's meant to draw in people to entertain them. And the key word there is entertain. So you're not going to be doing a documentary because I think most people today probably would not be entertained. Well, exactly. But wasn't there, I mean, someone pointed out to me that there was a critical, one of the critical errors in the movie was that the Asheville machine that was being portrayed as having been uh, compromised and, and, and exploited by the allies was actually a different machine. Is, is that is that true? Yeah, there's some confusion there in terms of um, at, at one point they show a four-rotor machine. Well, actually, that is supposed to come in the future, uh, which is really regrettable. Um, the And the fact that uh, Turing, when he first gets his answer uh, off the the bomb, the uh, that breaks right. the thing, but that gets those initial parameters, but only some of them, he jumps up and goes to the Enigma and starts decrypting. Well, that's not happened exactly like that. There was much more work to be done. When the bomb stopped, it gave you some parameters. You had to work, get analysts involved to recover the rest. So it could be a day, two days, three days, or perhaps not at all. Um, The bomb sometimes would stop at an answer that was consistent, but not necessarily the answer. So if it had a lot of those types of answers before getting the right one, that meant a lot of work. Right. And just for clarification, when you say the bomb, that was the, the computer that was used at Bushley Park. In fact, one of the, if memory serves me correct, one of the first real computers in the modern sense. Right. And, and in fact, when I left the National Cryptologic Museum one time about 10, 15 years ago uh, to go to BWI, the Baltimore-Washington airport, um, 
Jack Ingram told me, like, Richard, do you want a bomb rotor for your collection? And I said, Jack, I'm not going to uh, hesitate on my answer. So as I was driving down the parkway to the airport, I told myself, now, Richard, if you're asked by security what that is, do not say bomb rotor. It's a bomb. <laughs> I want to get to Ottawa and with myself and the rotor. That's right. Things not to say it's security. Excuse me, sir. I see this uh, this thing in your in your in your uh, in the X ray. What is it? Oh, it's just part of a bomb. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ways to ensure you'll never get on the plane ever again. Uh, yeah. You, you uh, know, you're, you raise an interesting point uh, when we were talking about you know the exploitation and the success against the German cipher uh, systems in the Second World War. You talked about the Scandinavians being one of the early successes. I also have learned that a lot of Polish mathematicians were involved. Of course, these were Poles who fled the invasion of Poland by the Nazis in 1939. Just how multinational was the effort at Bletchley Park during the Second World War when the Allies got together to try and figure out what the Nazis were saying to break their systems to give us the advantage in terms of uh, you know bringing the war forward? I'm so delighted that you brought up the mention of the Polish mathematicians. Uh, they were the first ones way back in 1933. They started breaking Enigma messages, and they not, they did not share that uh, uh, that facility, that feature, with anybody. They once they had that going, they wanted to keep to themselves. And in fact, when they finally shared that at the brink of being invaded in 1939, the British and the French, when they met with them in uh, Poland, uh, they were just like jaws dropped, like, what? Dillian Ox, for example, if you read some of the books, was just like beside himself, could not believe it. They thought, you know, they're making this up. Um, so anyway... The Poles had recovered uh, rotors one, two, three, and four and five. Uh, there was an evolution through time in the 30s where when initially the Germans used the Enigma, they had exactly three rotors, but you could shuffle the order in which they went into the machine. Could be one, two, three, right. three, two, one. 1938, 39, they make five rotors available to pick three. And But you know, the German Navy was always a little wanted to be different than anybody else. So they decide they're going to have three extra rotors. So for a total of eight to put in that uh, set of three positions. Right. So right. yeah, the Poles, when they gave that to the Brits and the French, it was a great starting point. Uh, in fact, when they went to five rotors, it was becoming too hard for them. They had developed a lot of sophisticated techniques for just three rotors to work on the six permutations, but when it went up to five, that meant up to 60 permutations. So that was right. beyond their scope. So they, the, the Brits took that to advantage, but then Turing came to play and he wanted to develop an attack different from what the Poles had, had accomplished. And he wanted to work with something called a crib. Crib essentially yeah. is a small stretch for Enigma. Yeah. It was basically 10, 12, maybe 13, 14 characters long. And you had to place that at the right place underneath the cipher, match the cipher with what you suspect is the plain text. And the bomb, the Enigma bomb, would operate <laughs> with that guess. Okay. Boy, you're bringing back memories of all this terminology of my time in, in, in that part of CSE. So any insight, Richard, as to how the polls were as successful as they were? 
given that they didn't have? I'm, I'm guessing the types of equipment that were later found at Bletchley Park, were they just that brilliant or did, did they have a source or like how was it they were able to achieve what they could? Uh, well, uh, the one thing you just mentioned that they definitely had, and which was absolutely key, the three mathematicians uh, who they employed, um, especially, uh, uh, oh goodness, uh, there was Zagalski, Ryuski, and uh, oh my God, the can he's the more important one of the three. Uh, uh, anyway, um, it'll come to me. Th those three uh, developed techniques to recover the rotors. Now, the second thing you said was having access to sources is actually true. And that came thanks to the French, uh, Gustave Bertrand, who was working for the French sort of clandestine interfacing with the cryptographic elements. He had access to a German who worked very closely with top uh, level uh, Enigma codes. His name was Hans Tilo Schmidt. His code name was Ache. And uh, he delivered uh, sort of key sheets, uh, instructions. Now, the key sheets were very important because if you intercepted the messages, you had access to some information about the starting positions. Right. The indicators were encrypted and they were twice encrypted, which was really key, but we're going to get into too much detail if we, I, I try to describe that. Anyway, um, so with those key lists, and if you've intercepted all these messages, then now you can start marrying that information together. And that's what allowed um, uh, Ryuski. There we go. Uh, that's the uh, main mathematician, uh, absolutely mm -hmm. phenomenal individual. Just like Tut, uh, there's some video clips of him, and you can see he's a very shy and humble individual. And the one thing he said later in life, and when I always say this story when I give Enigma talks, I told you about twice encrypted indicator positions. These are the starting positions right. where right. the wheels right. will start. Right the Germans would have been far better off to just put those starting positions in the clear than to twice encrypt them because the double encryption told you a lot about what the inside of the machine was. So uh, anyway, so one of those things uh, that the operator, they decided to use as part of their um, operational uh, encryption techniques, and that was very damaging, at least during the 30s. Oh, wow, these are these are excellent, excellent stories. The other thing that I'm going to switch gears a little bit here, Richard, is that obviously code breaking has become part of you know the uh, popular culture, if you will. You see it referred to in movies and such. If memory serves me correct, uh, Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase were in Spies Like Us, I think, in the 80s. And Dan Aykroyd claimed he found <clears throat> his code-breaking system in a cereal box, I think, if that memory serves me correct. But a lot of what you have in your website is kind of the, the, the popular culture um, view of, of spying and of, of code-breaking and stuff. You've got, you know, old lunch boxes and stuff, and things like probably like Get Smart. Is there any part of the popular culture memorabilia that you have that you would describe as kind of your favorite pieces? I mean, I, I do have some favorites um, and some of the themes you'll find, uh, for example, uh, 
there's the toys, of course, the decoders you would get on cereal boxes. Uh, if you listen to radio shows uh, back in the 20s and 30s and 40s, like Radio Orphan Annie, Captain Midnight. And then when TV came around, you had different followings. For example, I have decoders that tie in with the Partridge family or the Osmonds. The Partridge family? Yep. You, you remember those, <laughs> eh? You remember the family? <laughs> <laughs> they had their own secret code. Oh, well, I guess if you're a popular singing family, you've got to keep your secrets from someone. Right. And then in terms of a favorite, I guess it's not the most super collectible, but it is meaningful to me. In the 60s, there was a TV show on CBC called Razzle Dazzle. I was I don't remember that show. I was uh, maybe too young. <laughs> and uh, they had uh, a secret code. Every week there would be a secret code. And anyway, uh, a few years ago, I put my hands on an envelope and it had all the uh, codes that were issued and the uh, child, likely with the help of their parent, in some cases, uh, was able to uh, decode. Um, so anyway, because it's got a Canadian angle to it, um, and it's the only one I've ever seen, uh, that is somewhat special to me. Oh, that, 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 that's, that's so cool. It's always nice to be able to throw a Canadian angle in it. Richard, so last question I have for you is that, it seems to me, as I said, sort of the, the, the glory days of, of code breaking, I think, you know, are maybe behind us. Do you think that in in, in modern intelligence, so either CSE or, or CSIS or whatever law enforcement, do you think that code breaking is accorded as, as high important a role as it was when you and I worked in the 80s and 90s? Or is it now because of what we already talked about, some of the fact that systems are so uh, so good uh, in terms of, you know, computer uh, code making is that it really gets that much harder to do as opposed to mechanical code making. Is it of a lesser importance from your perspective or is it still a pretty critical part of intelligence gathering and law enforcement? Uh, I might recast your question back a bit, if you don't mind, Phil. I would say sure, I think it's in the, the game of intelligence, producing intelligence. Uh, and that was starting to be uh, I, I was a manager at the end when I, I retired at CSC, and I, I was somewhat involved with, uh, you know, aspects to do in intelligence overall. And right. one started to wonder, you know, with the sophistication of communications, and if you want to get a handle on what exactly and where exactly the information is that uh, is potentially of interest to you. Now, the linguist analyst in a way, do they have to start being a little more technical? Because if you want to understand where the communications goes uh, and to have a chance at uh, maybe extracting, collecting, intercepting, whichever one will bring you that information to your screen. And how about those who help you like okay it could be the code breakers it could be the interceptors it could be so to what degree do they have to become a little more analyst like to understand you know so how do we bring the right product to your screen i think a lot has to start with the analyst themselves so in some cases he may go to the code breaker listen i can get this uh um, this intercept here potentially i don't have it yet but could you do something with that 
potentially. And so I think it's more the analyst that's really becoming more and more complex. And I think if I were to go in today's CSC building and perhaps the one next door, I suspect that some of these analysts are becoming a heck of a lot more technical than they were in our day. I think you're absolutely spot on. Uh, I know that even when I sort of ended my career at CSC and went into CSIS, we were becoming, as I was a linguist analyst, as you know, and, and I'd often, often talk to you, you'd, you'd say, hey, I've got something here, does it make any sense? Um, right. There was, there was the requirement on us to become a lot more technologically and technically savvy, not just in terms of, you know, it wasn't enough to say, be able to speak Lower Slobovian and able to translate something. It's like, hey, you have to know more about how the Lower Slobovians communicate. And, and I remember as well that we were being called upon to predict's not the right word, keep up on where the communications were going. Because if you were relying on one mode of communication and you were sort of, you get, you're fat and happy and you don't worry about it, and you, you fail to notice that that mode of communication is, is disappearing, uh, and is moving to another mode, you've simply lost your source of intelligence. And I, and I can cite one example, which I don't think is all that secret, but you know, you probably remember, remember the day when telexes were, were ruled the roost, right? Everyone used telex. Well, telex got phased out in the 1990s. And if you weren't up on where the person's uh, communications were going, when the telex machine got turned off for the last time, you lost your source of intelligence unless you could figure out how else they were sending it. So I, I, I think you're right. I, I think the intelligence analyst of the 21st century is a, a significantly different beast than, than uh, you know, the, the kinds of things that I used to do, certainly, uh, when I was at CSC. But uh, Richard, I, I think that we could uh, have this conversation for months. Um, <laughs> I will I will honor you and say, without a doubt, you are one of the more interesting people I've interviewed over the past five years when it comes to intelligence gathering and exploitation. It, it, it probably doesn't hurt that you know we used to work together and you do have a unique insight uh, into the history of code breaking and uh, you know you worked for a Canadian agency that was involved in that. So I'm gonna definitely point my people in, in the in my followers in the direction of your website. And, uh, and I can't wait to the day. So I've seen you display the machines at different conferences in the past. And I can't wait to, to next time when, when COVID is over and uh, I can get my hands on that Enigma machine one, one more time. Right. And, uh, of course, in the last uh, while, the, since early uh, 2020, the, uh, every so often we give tours, especially, especially from CSE, where as part of the United Way auction, we'd have uh, yeah. uh, an invitation for guests to come and look at the collection. So hopefully, uh, let's all hope that... Uh, life gets back to some normality in the not too distant future and uh, first and foremost, and then we can start showing this collection again. Well, I, I look forward to those days because it's an absolutely fascinating part of, of, of Canadian history and intelligence history. So once again, Richard, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to me today. You're most welcome, Phil, anytime. So that was my conversation with Richard Brisson, an old uh, code breaker from a communication security establishment. As I said, I think one of the more unique guests I've had on the program. What do you think of our conversation? Do you have any any experience in code breaking yourself? What do you think of the way that Hollywood portrays this kind of activity? Love to hear from you. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You'll also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like this content and want to get more of it, I humbly suggest you subscribe. Go to my website, borealisthreatenrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. You get all the content, all the podcasts, all the blogs free of charge to your inbox. I'd love to hear your feedback on this and other material. 
I'll talk to you guys soon. Until then, stay safe.